You want me to start it? Sure. Are we are our brains ready? Yeah. It's getting ready here. <laughs> yeah, get that get that coffee One more ingested. Tyler, you're tending on a different one. I've not taught a lesson like this on a Thursday morning for quite some time. Uh, but last week, the book talked about spiritual gifts and had a section about charismatic gifts, signed gifts. And one of the things that it said in here was nowhere in the New Testament does it say that these gifts will cease once the apostolic era has ended. So since we all kind of take exception to that. We uh, decided to do a little listen about it and about defending um, our view of cessationism biblically. And cessationism is the word for the gifts have ceased. So secession is when states separate from states. You guys know about secession in the Civil War. Cessation is the ceasing of the gifts. So that's what that's about. He didn't have to move, Travis. I wanted to be able to see who turned my neck sideways. Okay. All right. Okay, well, why don't I pray and then we'll get started? This will be about like a one hour seminar, so uh, we'll get going. Father, we thank you so much for today and we thank you for this fellowship and time around your word. We ask that you would cause us to discern rightly what it has said, that we would have doctrine that is good uh, for your glory that we would not seek to exalt ourselves, but that we would seek to exalt you and honor you the way uh, you've, you've, you desire to be honored, that we would worship the way you desire to be worshiped, that we would um, be in full submission to what your word has said. By your spirit, cause us to see what it is we need to see and have unity around this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when it comes to... Uh, explaining that the charismatic gifts have ceased. It's kind of like explaining our view on the Trinity in that we you don't go to one verse and then you get it all in one verse, right? Uh, you know what it's like talking to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or something about the Trinity and they're like, well, it's just not in the Bible. Yes, it is. It just takes a really big study, right? <laughs> it, uh, a lot of those people don't want to study the Bible comprehensively. They want, give me a verse that says it and you know, then they give it, but that's what they're looking for. Well, charismatic gifts, we don't have a verse that says, here's what they are, here's why they existed, and here's why they don't exist anymore. So we're going to have to jump around a little bit. You see on your sheet, we've got, we're going to look at several different passages. But what we want to aim to do is be consistent as we tie these passages together and see what it is that God did with these gifts. So let's start in 1 Corinthians 12. We want to define what the gifts are. That's that's the, the most basic point. What are we even talking about here? Uh, when it comes to other believers, what are we arguing about? Well, here's where we see charismatic gifts in the Bible listed out, uh, the only place where we see it. So would someone read verses 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 12? Got it. Okay. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, 
miraculous powers to another, prophecy to another, distinguishing uh, between spirits to another, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. You want to ten. Uh, did you finish off? Yeah. Okay. So there's a case to be made there in that list that all of those gifts are charismatic gifts, supernatural charismatic gifts in some way. There's also a case to be made that some of them are and some of them aren't. Uh, for instance, there's a view that word of wisdom and word of knowledge are just other ways of talking about teaching. And that's possible, quite possible. Uh, yet there's a school of thought that says word of wisdom and word of knowledge are just as charismatic as tongues and healings and miracles. So uh, either way, there are nine gifts listed here, and this is the only place in all of Scripture where we see these gifts listed. Now that's important to remember, because if you are going to talk to a charismatic person who's really fired up about charismatic stuff, they're going to make it sound like this stuff's all over Scripture. Just bang, bang, bang. It's just left and right. You've got healings, miracles, tongues, prophecy, all that stuff. Well, even though there are instances of those things throughout Scripture in the New Testament in certain sections, this is the only place where we see these gifts listed as being given to the church, where certain people in the church are enabled to do these certain things. And I want to challenge you to think about this, and I welcome your feedback on it too. Were these gifts infallible? When you think about the gifts listed here, uttering wisdom, uttering knowledge, prophecy, speaking in another language, which is prophecy through that language is essentially what that is. It's a version of prophecy. Were those infallible or could those people be wrong when they uttered those things under the power of God's spirit? Now, I believe strongly that it was just like the office of an Old Testament prophet. When they spoke, if it was by the Holy Spirit, it was infallible. There's no margin for error there. <laughs> uh, if you're uttering a word of knowledge and you're wrong, well, you're not doing it by the power of the Spirit. You're just doing it by the flesh. There are some people who will argue, our brothers in the Lord, who will argue that, well, this was different than in the Old Testament. When they prophesied in the New Testament with the gift of prophecy, it, they could have been wrong. It's mixed with error. And they say that it continues on that way today, that when people prophesy in the church, it's not, and they're wrong, it's not that they don't have the gift, it's that they have the gift, it's just that they, they're wrong sometimes. Not a very consistent argument, okay? So um, that's a, another sticking point in this whole conversation. But doesn't that violate, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, Doesn't that fine. violate the Deuteronomy 13? Requirement that the prophet be well, accurate. But again, they separate Old Testament prophet from New Testament gift of prophecy. Old Testament prophet has to obey Deuteronomy 13 and 18. New Testament gift of prophecy, you can be wrong and it's okay. I don't see how you can do that, but that's what they do. And they have to do because the people who say they have the gift of prophecy are wrong. Quite a bit. <laughs> All right. So Paul gives this list to the Corinthians. It's important to remember context. He gives it. Uh, in the midst of an explanation of what God is doing in creating something new among them and in the world. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 12. Look how Paul introduces this list of spiritual gifts. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, 
You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So he's getting ready to contrast in your former life, you were pagans, you were led by pagan gods. They, they, this is how your life was. Now it's this way. And look down at verse 13 with me. He says, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is something new that God is doing in the world. So this is all in the context, these spiritual gifts, in the context of a new creation. God is, is making a new creation in them individually and in the world with the church. The church is new. So these spiritual gifts are directly tied to the newness of their salvation and the newness of the church. That's important. Because we, we always get, it seems like, in Christian circles, spiritual gifts come with your salvation. Newness of creation, individually, you get spiritual gifts. But I want you to think in the context of this study, spiritual gifts also being new with this new creation in the world, the church. Okay, that's an important aspect of this whole line of reasoning. Let's turn to Ephesians 2 together. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Would someone want to read those for us? Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having uh, been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. All right, so the, this new creation in the world, the church, what's the foundation, the singular foundation? He's the cornerstone, but what's the foundation? Apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. <clears throat> Notice it's apostles first and prophets. This is talking about New Testament apostles and prophets. That's the foundation of the church. And foundations don't need to continue to be relayed, do they? You got one foundation and it's good? You build on it. You don't lay another foundation. So the apostles and prophets, these offices in the New Testament... They don't need to be continued to be relayed. That's the, that's the big gist of this argument I'm making this morning, is that the apostles and prophets came along once to serve as a foundation for the next 2,000 years plus of the church. And the charismatic gifts are directly tied to those offices. That's what we're going to see in the following passages. Is you've got these offices... And all those gifts, tongues and healing and prophecy and all that, directly tied to those offices at the foundation. You don't have those gifts outside of those offices. You don't have tongues, you don't have prophecy, you don't have healing, you don't have miracles, you don't have signs and wonders without the offices of apostle and prophet in the New Testament. And we see this in Jesus' ministry when he sent out the 70. Do you remember what they said when they came back, when Jesus sent out the, the 70 and they returned? They were surprised at something. What was it, Jerry? That the demons were subject to them. Right? Yes. And do you remember what Jesus said in response? Because he wasn't surprised, right? <laughs> he said, I have given you this power. I have given you this power. Do you remember after his resurrection in John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on the disciples? Isn't that weird? And he, he commanded them, receive the Holy Spirit. Where else do we see God breathing on man? Genesis 1. Good, Genesis 2. 
He breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. A new creation. There's something going on that's new. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're receiving power. They're receiving authority. And the apostles had a particular authority. Right after they returned and said, even the demons submit. And Jesus said, I've given you this authority. He went on to say, or given you this power. He went on to say, I give you the authority that, like Matthew 18 says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The apostles had a particular power. They had a particular authority that came directly from Jesus by way of the Holy Spirit. Make sense? Okay. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, you don't have to turn there, but what it says in that, in that passage, Paul talking to this Corinthian church again, he says, surely among you, you saw the, uh, the gifts of an apostle or the signs of an apostle were performed among you. There were particular signs, particular works of an apostle that confirmed his apostleship. The Corinthians, the Corinthians weren't apostles. They were a church. So when a guy comes along and says he's an apostle, this guy knows it. The Lord commissioned him. But the church, they're, they're sitting there like, well, how do we know if you're an apostle? Well, there were particular signs that testified to that role that God had given them. And those particular signs are tied to that office. Okay? Questions on the definition of charismatic gifts? So, today, we have the same Holy Spirit that the apostles and the New Testament believers had. So, the... But, nobody read on me, but... God when I was created, yeah. right? Um, the new apostolic reformation, right? They they talk about apostles and and they put a great deal of store and you pointed that out here. So that's strictly a first century New Testament, Jesus Christ breathing the Holy Spirit on these men and these men were witnesses to him, right? As a foundation for the foundation. church. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because if we if we remove the metaphor of foundation from those offices that Scripture gives us, then yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they continue? But once we understand that they served as a foundation for the building up of the church, now that means something else, right? Um, so, yeah, that's critical. Well, that goes along with the fact that we have never anywhere seen that happen anywhere through centuries. We make a big mistake, I've always thought, with using the word had in past tense. The apostles are still the foundation of the church right now. They're still Jesus' church. We don't leave the church when we die. And they didn't. We don't. We want to be part of the bride of Christ in the future. So we better not die out of it. Yeah, yeah, we better not. Yeah, obviously, uh, <laughs> that'd be bad. The ministry that God gave them is still very much uh, a part of Christian life. So they still serve as a foundation because of the scriptures. Okay, well, let's turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll now look at this section the origin and the transmission of these spiritual gifts. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. 
You all probably know these verses. Someone read those for us? Okay. okay. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. All right. Have you all ever been talking to someone who believes we should all speak in tongues, and that person say, well, God doesn't change. So, if God doesn't change, then, I mean, when they spoke in tongues, we should speak in tongues. They spoke in tongues in the Bible, we should speak in tongues today. God doesn't change. Well, if you ever hear that argument, something you can say is, can you show me in the Old Testament where they spoke in tongues? Because, you know, those first 39 books of the Bible, there was a lot of tongue speaking going on, except for in Genesis 11, at a certain tower. There was judgment set on all mankind, all mankind, and they were given different tongues to speak in, to be confused. It was a sign of judgment. It wasn't something that was good, but it was something that God had judged them in because of their pride. Then you get to the New Testament, and tongues becomes a sign of something else. It is still a sign of judgment against Israel that the gospel is going to the nations because all these other languages are now speaking the oracles of God. But it's also a sign that people had received the Holy Spirit. So when people say, well, God doesn't change. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, they spoke in tongues then. We should speak in tongues now. Well, that's a really poor argument because God did change the way uh, he, people communicated. God has changed certain things in certain ways over time. And this is really what's at the core of dispensational theology, but we won't get into all of that. But it's fine to say, yes, there are certain things that God changes. For instance, what could Adam and Eve eat? Vegetables. Veggies. What could the Israelites eat under the Mosaic Law? Shellfish. Beef. <laughs> yeah, not pork. Kosher beef. And what can you eat? Anything. But God doesn't change. Well, God doesn't change, so how can that be? Well, that is so dumb to get the <laughs> character and his nature uh -huh. of what he is doing. I mean, he isn't creating, he stopped creation after six days of being created. Mm -hmm. It's a very poor argument. It's, well, it's, a, it's not an argument. It's just <laughs> stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a pretext. Very <laughs> yeah. And we see right here in this text, look at verse 1 again. And long ago, God spoke in various ways, at various times. God's communication with man has been varied through the ages. And yet now, in these last days, is what it says in verse 2, in these last days, it's the same word where we get eschatology, talking about end times. We are, we've got a foot in eschatology according to this verse. In these last days, his communication comes directly through the Son. All right? The last days are the days of the church. And we hear through the Son. And the church has a foundation of the offices of apostles and prophets and their gifts. As commissioned by Jesus himself. Look at chapter 2. Same book, chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. Who can read that for us? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, 
and every transgression of disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first opened through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. I think this might be the strongest passage in the New Testament, if you're going to pick one, about the ceasing of the office of apostle, the office of prophet, and the ceasing of the charismatic gifts. This might be the one strongest mm -hmm. passage. Starting in verse 3, what's the, the chain of how salvation was proclaimed? Uh, just with people. There are three sets of people. What, what is it? Starting in verse 3. Jesus. Okay. First, declared by the Lord Jesus. Second, uh, it, it goes out of order as you read it. So, Those who heard from him. Okay. Who are they? The apostles. The apostles were those who heard from Jesus, and it was attested to who? What's uh, the pronoun? Them. Them. No, it was heard by, heard by them, and it was attested to? By signs and wonders. By signs. No. Wait. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So, you've got Jesus, those who heard Jesus, us. See those three groups there? Those who heard Jesus were the ones who related to us. And then they did that, like you guys were saying, verse 4, by signs and wonders. God bore witness through them, speaking to us through their signs and wonders. It doesn't say when they spoke to us, we all did. It says they heard the Lord God testified with them right along through them through signs and wonders. So these gifts were confirmatory. These signs and wonders were confirmatory gifts. They confirmed what the apostles had. They confirmed and testified to the gospel that the disciples went out into the world and shared. They were confirmatory in nature. Jude 3, you don't have to turn there, but you can maybe write this down. Jude is just one chapter, and so Jude verse 3 speaks of a faith handed down once for all to all the saints. And right here we see how that worked. Jesus declared it, and then the apostles took it and handed it down through signs and wonders. It was given to us. That was one I used with the Mormon missionaries. Good. Good. That yeah. That, having that doctrine and understanding what's in Jude 3 applies in a variety of contexts, especially those who say there's a great apostasy and we're all apostates. Yeah. And what we see in the New Testament is that the apostles who had these gifts that confirmed their message, that testified to their message, you know what they also did with their gifts? They had the power and authority to impart those gifts to regular, run-of-the-mill, non-apostle lay believers. So let's look at that. So this is gets where it gets really interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 4. And would someone read verses 4 through 8 for us? I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in 
so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and let's go ahead and look at chapter 2, 1 through 5, same kind of themes that we see here. Someone read that for us? When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. All right, so we see that in the life of the Corinthians, the church life there, that the testimony that Paul brought concerning Christ was confirmed in them by the power of God. There was a confirmation that took place in them by the power of God. And this is the same thing that happened to the Thessalonians. It says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, uh, right at the start of the letter to the Thessalonians, that when we spoke, it wasn't just with words of man, but there was power that you believed. It was confirmed in you. There was a certain power. And there, was, there were signs worked through the apostles. And an aspect of these signs and wonders was that the people received gifts. Look back at chapter 1 that Mike read for us. Chapter 1, verse 7. As this testimony about Christ was confirmed in them, they were not lacking any spiritual gift. They weren't lacking any spiritual gift. That means that the other way to say that, the positive way to say it, is they had all spiritual gifts in Corinth. That through the power of the apostles' preaching, they received all spiritual gifts. And that confirmation that the Corinthians received was the power of God. The Holy Spirit demonstrating the power of God by imparting all spiritual gifts to them. And I'll read to you Romans 1.11. Listen to what Paul said to the Romans. <laughs> it's just an interesting thing that we didn't, won't see in our day. But Paul said to them, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. There was a way, an aspect, that the apostles were used to impart spiritual gifts to other believers because they had the power and authority to do so. If you read through First and Second Timothy, three times Paul tells Timothy between the two books, don't neglect the spiritual gift you received by prophetic utterances and by the laying on of hands. There was some sort of power that God had given in that first century church for them to impart a gift through the laying on of hands and prophetic utterances. So he had premeditated gift giving in mind. In so it seems Romans that way. So it seems that either that or they just did it and God did what he did through them and the gift that he gave was the gift they received. Interesting stuff. So that's... So when we think about the origin, well, God's doing something new in the church. He's establishing new offices. Directly tied to these offices are these gifts. These gifts are new. These signs and wonders that are confirming the gospel. Jesus gave this power to his apostles. 
And then they were, they were transmitted through the apostles, both by their preaching and God confirming in the hearer, and by the laying on of hands and imparting spiritual gifts to those first century believers. So if the apostles didn't die and they were still around today, they could come into our church and lay hands on somebody and impart a spiritual gift under God's authority. Isn't that an amazing thought? And I, I would, if the apostles were still alive and doing that, I would have no argument for, number one, the closing of the canon. <laughs> uh, we would be able to hear more scripture directly from the apostles. But I would also have no argument against the charismatic gifts. Because there they are performing signs and wonders and then imparting the ability to certain believers. Interesting stuff. Thoughts or questions on that section? Making sense? When Romans 1, right after he does that, he says, I long to impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. It says so you and I might be mutually encouraged. Hmm. So you see that's the purpose of the gift. Looking further into 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it's for the edification of the church, the building up of the church. And Paul says, I'd rather speak five words than regular words than 10,000 words that people can't understand. So, yeah. Uh, Or to glorify the Holy Spirit above Jesus. Yeah. Which you can, it can come across sounding like, well, okay, they want to make much of the Holy Spirit because people like us, we're just old fuddy duddies and we took the Holy Spirit and we shoved them in a bag and tied it up and said, we don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit. Well, he has a role still. And what did Jesus teach that his role is in John 16? He will glorify me, Jesus said. So any, anytime someone wants to glorify the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't want to be glorified. So there's a biblical case against that. Not that he's any less God. Just like Jesus is no less God than the Father. They just have particular roles within the Godhead. So um, I have a family member that is kind of going down this path. And um, she was raised in in a very strict, legalistic Christian church, Church of Christ. So, it <clears throat> seems to me that she is just, you know, turning and having not grown up legalistic, I don't really understand completely, but it seems like she's gone from sort of one extreme to another, where uh, repressed and you had to be within strict guidelines and now you know the Holy Spirit is free and he does all these really cool things um, but kind of the argument that I've gotten and we've not argued directly but the way that she's spoken is well you know God is a God of miracles right and that and I agree that he is right and yet, what we're talking about specifically is the authority for the apostles, mm -hmm. right? Isn't that kind of where God, God can do what he wants within his character? But Yeah, well, the thing is, she's not free because you go from one law saying, here are your works to do, and then the new law that she now has in her life is, 
have these constant miracles or otherwise you're not spiritual. Have these works in your life or you're not spiritual. Have these miracles in your life or you're not spiritual. That's not freedom. That's just a different type of bondage. And if you're not seeing those miracles, then you're going to feel like less of a Christian, just like in the legalistic system. If you don't have these works, you're going to feel like less of a Christian. So a true freedom comes from having it all in Christ and, and submitting to him. So, But yeah, I, and one of the things I'll say at the end is that we don't believe miracles have ceased. Um, but we also believe that by definition, miracles are abnormal. Yeah. When you normalize miracles, they're no longer miracles. Yeah. So, right. All right, uh, let's talk about the passing away of the gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Would someone like to read that for us? Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there were our tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when uh, the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Okay. So this passage is an interesting one, and it's inconclusive. So I'm going to tell you that right off the bat. It's a little bit dubious and inconclusive. But let's look at a bare minimum what we can glean and all agree on across the Christian spectrum, what we can all agree on according to this passage it's that gifts are temporary and will cease. Okay, we can agree on that. Gifts are temporary and will cease. Now, the argument comes, comes in when it's like, when and where? <laughs> when will they cease? How will they cease? Uh, you know, when you start answering those questions, now it gets a little confusing. You see here that he brings up right in the middle of Chapters 12, 12 and 14 that are very heavy talking about charismatic gifts. You have him bringing up charismatic gifts and saying prophecies are going to pass away. Tongues will cease and knowledge will pass away. And then he says we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, and this is where it gets really mysterious. When the perfect comes, those part things, those partial things will pass away. There's an argument to be made. I'm not saying I believe it or agree with it. I'm not saying I disagree with it. But there's an argument to be made that the perfect is the closing of the canon. The apostles' foundation. The work that they've done. The apostles and prophets giving us the scriptures. When the canon comes, those things like prophecy and tongues will be done away. It's a logical argument. Exegetically, it's not... The most sound. I'm not saying it's wrong, because there's an argument to be made. But that's something that some people will say. Probably a better understanding is that the perfect has to do with the eternal state that commences through the return of Jesus. And that isn't to say then, well, then tongues and prophecy and everything else will continue on until Jesus returns. That's that shouldn't be uh, drawn out of there. But it is an interesting passage that just at least notes these particular gifts as representative of all the gifts will eventually pass away. That there's a temporal nature to the spiritual gifts. And that can be one that you study more to understand more. But that argument exists. I wanted to point that out to you. I don't think that's the strongest argument. I think, in fact, the strongest argument comes pretty naturally if you've been tracking with me through the first two-thirds of the lesson, that the 
charismatic gifts are directly tied to the offices of apostle and prophet. If you see that and believe that scripture teaches that, well, now it's pretty simple. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 1, the end of Acts 1, when it comes to picking a, a new apostle to replace Judas. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. Would someone like to read those six verses for us? I got it. Okay. Okay. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. All right. So the apostles saw their role, if you look back at uh, the end of verse 22, the apostles saw their role as witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, you will be my witnesses, earlier in the chapter, Jesus said. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Uh, is how that verse starts. So, integral to their role as apostles is being witnesses, not just in the sense today that we believe that we are witnesses and that we have testimonies, but in the eyewitness sort of way. Eyewitnesses to his resurrection. There were qualifications for who could be the apostle to replace Judas. That beginning from the baptism of John until the day Jesus ascended to heaven... One of those men, it said, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So when it came to replacing Judas, it's not like they had unlimited options. Why did they only set forth two? There was a limited number of people who fit the qualifications. And of those who fit the qualifications, there was a limited number who would even desire that and who felt any kind of calling within them from God directly to that role. So the qualifications... Uh, are important to remember that they had to be around during Jesus' earthly ministry. They had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. And as they cast lots, the lot fell to Matthias. What does that lot casting tell us about this process truly? There you go. God is the one who picks the apostle. God's the one who does it. So, they replaced Judas with Matthias. And now let's look at Acts chapter 12. We were just here a few, couple weeks ago on Wednesday night. Tyler talked through this. Acts 12 verses 1 and 2. Acts 12. Yeah. Acts 12, 1 and 2. You want to read that too, Andy? You got it? Uh, no. Okay, I'll read it. That's okay. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, an apostle. He killed him with the sword. 
the passage does not go on to say, and they cast lots to see who would replace James. They moved on. The church moved on. There were no other apostles uh, who were chosen to replace James. And remember, it was before this that Saul was called on the road to Damascus. So it's not like, well, then Paul took his place. Paul had already been become an apostle. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. We're in Acts 12. And they did not replace James. And we don't have any evidence in the rest of the, there are 28 chapters of Acts. We don't have any evidence in the rest of the chapters that as the apostles were dying off, that they were being replaced. It didn't happen because, number one, there were fewer and fewer men who were qualified based on the qualifications of Acts 1. Number two, God didn't call any of them. Remember how God called Saul pretty directly? You know, like, met him on the road and told him <laughs> you were going to be a witness for me? And the foundation was being laid. They wouldn't need to keep adding apostles if the apostles and prophets were a foundation. It's a biblical argument to say, let's not lay a foundation on top of another man's foundation. It says that in Scripture. And that's the idea with the church. We, we don't need more of a foundation. We've already been given a foundation. And now my last uh, argument is more of a big picture thing, specifically about tongues. And I've got on your sheet Acts 2, 10, 11. You do well to remember this argument. Remember those chapters, 2, 10, 11. Kind of rolls off the tongue, 2, 10, 11. Okay? <laughs> Acts 2, 10, 11. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, they're up there and they're having their prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit comes and finish the story. What happens? Holy Spirit comes and appears like fire on them, and they start speaking in tongues, and there are people from all over the Mediterranean, and they recognize their own languages. And so what does that tell us about the tongues? The, con the tongues are understandable. Good. It's not ecstatic it's language. It's not babble. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some scholars who are more charismatic will say ecstatic speech instead of, uh, you know, babble. Uh, I like the word babble. Um, but it wasn't ecstatic speech. It was, they were actual languages. People could hear their languages being spoken. Really, the only argument to be made that there was ecstatic speech known as some sort of tongue in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 13, 1, which says, Paul saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Tongues of angels. Well, what, what language do angels speak? We don't know. And so there's an appeal to angelic languages being spoken on earth, and it sounds like Babel to human ears. I think Paul is using hyperbole here. I don't think... There's an actual language of angels that Paul knew and employed in his ministry. <laughs> uh, I think what he's saying is, even if I spoke like an angel but didn't have love, that I'm nothing. Emphasizing the love aspect, not that there's an actual language of angels. Um, so from Acts 2, it's very clear that these are understandable languages. Now when we go to Acts 10, you've got Cornelius and his friends and family. And they hear the gospel. And upon hearing the gospel and believing, what do they do? Speak in tongues. Okay. And the same way that the apostles did. Isn't that Peter's whole argument in Acts chapter 10? Let's look at that. If you, if you were in Acts 12, you're close. Acts chapter 10. It's at the very end of the chapter. 
uh, starting in verse 44, it says, When Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing this people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter recognized what they were doing as something he had done. It wasn't like, oh, that's different than the way we did it. But God was showing through the same type of fashion that something was happening to them that had happened to them, to the apostles. It was happening to the Gentiles just like it happened to the Jews. So it served as a sign pointing to them having the Holy Spirit just as the apostles and the believing Jews did. And then in Acts 11, that's, what, that's Peter's argument. So you've got Acts 2, it's happening to the Jews. Acts 10, it's happening to the Gentiles. Acts 11, Peter reports to the church and he's putting these things together. And he explains it in Acts chapter 11. And Peter's sitting them and saying, look, I was, this is verse five, I was in Joppa, I was praying, I had this trance and I was told to go. And verse 12, the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Okay, God is bringing together Jew and Gentile for the church. Verse 15, I began to speak and the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us. There's that phrase, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God. The whole purpose of those events, those tongue-speaking events in Acts 2 and Acts 10 was a sign. That's why they're called sign gifts. They were pointing to the formation of the church through belief in the gospel, receiving the Holy Spirit by being a one regenerate body, taking two and making one new man from the two. That was the purpose of tongues. And then when we, we get to 1 Corinthians and we see the gift of tongues, it's the same thing as far as speaking. They were speaking known languages. Tongues didn't turn into something else. And they were a, still a sign pointing to God's power through his spirit, building his church on the foundation of the apostles. Mm -hmm. They still served as a sign in the church. And it seems to me that the Corinthians had that ability to speak in tongues. The only church that we know of that spoke in tongues... That's a big deal when you're talking about charismatic. The only church that we know of that spoke in tongues, they had that ability because the imparted gift of the apostles. And Paul even says to them, and this is in 1 Corinthians 14, when he says, look, if you all are all speaking in tongues and you're doing it all out of order and no one's interpreting, what benefit is that? He says that an unbeliever is going to come in and just look around and say, what on earth are you guys doing? Um, Let's see. And they do. Yeah, well, yeah. Yes. Um, well, let's see. I didn't write that reference down. It's in chapter 14. Nine. Nine, is that where it is? Yeah, with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You'll, you'll be speaking to the air. Wow. 
Um, that's, that's real encouraging. <laughs> um, here we go. Down, down later on in the chapter, he expands on that. Uh, where he says, starting in verse 26, When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up, like Tyler was pointing out earlier. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. You can kind of read through that and, and see how it is it's supposed to be done. Um, and, oh, verse 16 is another key passage. Um, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving if you're coming in and just speaking in tongues with there being no interpretation for building up? Um, do what? All things should be done decently and in order. Yeah, very key point. Yeah. Okay. And we'll talk through this more. Uh, like I said, I think I told you all before, we're going to go through 1 Corinthians next. That's our next book of the Bible, and we'll spend quite a bit of time there. Um, so, okay. Uh, some concluding thoughts. Again, this isn't to say that miracles have ceased. That's not the argument here. Um, in fact, many of you have experienced miraculous things in your life. There are some of you sitting here that should be dead, probably, if it were not for God's intervening sovereign grace in a miraculous way. Um, and this is, uh, this is really to say, so we're not saying miracles have ceased, but what we are saying is that the Word of God remains and charismatic gifts don't. The Word of God remains as here, authoritative for us today. Charismatic gifts do not remain. They faded out with the apostles because they were directly tied to that office. There are no qualified apostles on the face of the earth today. Don't ever budge on that point. Okay? Uh, not just Mormon church, but where I'm from, big charismatic churches where you'll be driving down the freeway in uh, Kansas City and you'll have a billboard. Prophet Thomas and Mary whoever, uh, apostles to... You know, and they're always weird names for churches. They don't even sound like churches, you know, like uh, Worldwide <laughs> Worldwide Glory Center or something like that is what they're called. They're the names that make no sense, and then they're the apostles of that church. Not the church of what's happening now. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> but it basically is. Yes, it is. Um, we want, whenever we are talking to a charismatic, especially someone who claims to have the charismatic gifts himself or herself, I want you to press that person on the infallibility issue. Could you be wrong about your prophecies? Watch them squirm. Could you be wrong about the things that God reveals through you? And watch them squirm with it. Because really, if the answer is yes, then that's not God. God doesn't reveal in an infallible way and then reveal in a fallible way. All of God's revelation is perfect and infallible. 
press them on that issue because they need to be pressed on that. They probably don't think through that as much as they should. When we think about Pentecostals and all the branches of Pentecostalism, like Assemblies of God is a branch of Pentecostalism, the one across the interstate here. When we think of that whole movement, it's way off in many ways. And uh, you need to be careful. When you hear someone's tied to Pentecostalism or tied to Assemblies of God, red flags should go up and really think discerning. Always be discerning. But you know that there are some things that people can say that kind of put you at ease, like, I love John MacArthur, and then he goes on to talk. And it's like, okay, all right. I'm a step back, right? Now, if someone says, I love Benny Hinn, and then starts to talk, now you're thinking about every word they're saying. And you're thinking about how you're going to challenge them. When it comes to Pentecostals and Assemblies of God and those sorts of things, they need to be in that Benny Hinn category. That's where Benny Hinn comes from, is a Pentecostal background. Then... My last point, not all people who believe in the continuation of the charismatic gifts are charismatic. Um, Take someone like David Platt, for example. Uh, He believes in the continuation of the charismatic gifts. He is not Benny Hinn. (laughs) He is in a a different category than Benny Hinn. Wayne Grudem believes in a continuation of the charismatic gifts. Sam Storms, John Piper, they all believe in a continuation of the charismatic gifts, but they are not charismatics. And to a very large degree, you can trust those guys in a different way than you can trust a lot of others. So recognize that, that we have a lot of brothers who just disagree with us on this issue. And I find it fascinating that the vast majority of those guys don't practice these gifts themselves. They're just afraid to say that no one else can do it. <laughs> We're not afraid. So <laughs> at least I'm not. Uh, but uh, th- that's kind of the position they take. They're called uh, charismatics with seatbelts. So they, they're, they're cautious about it. Um, yet I, I think we do well to recognize that it is a slippery slope. That's not always the best argument to make, but in this case it is. Look at someone like Francis Chan, who has always been open to the charismatic gifts, and now he is full on affirming those NAR guys. He was recently, this just came out last week, he was on a Zoom call with Bill Johnson, the founder of Bethel, who's a blasphemer, Mike Bickle, the founder of IHOP in uh, Kansas City, the International House of Prayer, um, who's a blasphemer, um, pagan, these guys, affirming them for their love and their teaching and saying how great they were and how he was wrong, how he used to teach against these guys, but now he was wrong and he fully embraces these guys. That's a slope you start on when you start embracing these gifts. So, just be aware of that. Okay? All right. Two minutes to spare. Thoughts or questions to wrap up? What about uh, private prayer language? Going in my closet to pray. I've heard it said. As long as it's a real language, pray it. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Go, yeah. Pray, go pray in the Spanish tongue or in the German tongue. Does God hear German prayers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The purpose of the gifts is edification of the church. How are you going to edify the church by being Yeah, and then that's, all, that's Paul's whole argument. If I pray in a tongue, I build up myself and myself only. But if I prophesy, I build up the whole church. I'd rather prophesy. I think, I think the way I heard it in the context was it's some angels thing. Yeah, so. yeah usually prayer language is ecstatic speech 
And again, you look for the foundation. And really all they have is this hyperbolic statement of Paul talking about tongues of angels. And that's nonsense. Hmm. Well, when you see how the apostles used their gifts, you, don't, you never seen that happen. You never saw any of those guys walking down the road, coming out of a car accident, yeah. Well, it hasn't this COVID-19 thing been a great example that the charismatic churches have closed? The healing centers have closed? I mean, it is a, it is a live contradiction. So, well, I hope you feel better equipped to answer someone biblically now. Have that sheet with you. You can review it. Uh, keep it in your Bible for when you know, you're on a plane and you're sitting next to, well, if we can sit next to people on planes anymore. Uh, <laughs> and you're Pentecostal, you can have a really fun conversation. Um, there are some other common markers of Pentecostals, just so you know, too. They're almost always going to be Arminian all the way in the sense that they believe you can lose your salvation, uh, which is a whole host of other issues, but we won't go into any of those today. So I need to really... Brush up on all this, like you said, Ellie's sister, her husband, who just passed away a couple of years ago, was uh, preaching Pentecostal. Hmm. Didn't the Nazarene Church also have that Armenian? They believe you can lose your salvation, yeah. Church of the Nazarene. Yep. And they're also, uh, like their they're pro-lady <laughs> lady pastors, too. Yeah. And okay. Pentecostals usually almost always are. They always are. They're always egalitarian, too, so that's another marker. Yep. Okay. Long and I pray. And thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. It's been a long time since so I've taught on it. So. Another week for us to memorize our verse. <laughs> okay, that's true. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even start. I'm not supposed to. We're preparing you. I'm give you a raise. Now. Well, we could all use more time. That'd be good. Father, we again thank you for today and for your word. And again, Lord, we just want to worship you rightly. We want to honor you, and we want to live the way we were designed to live today as followers of Christ. We want to do all things from a perspective of love and humility. Give us that. Don't give us uh, knowledge that puffs up, but give us uh, knowledge and wisdom that comes from Christ that brings us low and causes us to wash feet. In conversations with people that we would um, be able to be used by you as instruments in your hand to speak truth into someone's life for your glory, that we would become more like our Savior through those conversations and through our own personal study. God, give us a heart for the lost and give us evangelistic conversations today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.